0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan-specific communication skills, especially in business. While I can't and won't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. I just wanted to take a quick second to remind you that I've put together a cheat sheet for people who want to start or continue their Japanese language studies. It's really just meant to give you some guidance if you're feeling overwhelmed and trying to figure out how to get started, or if you're looking for what resources you should try to incorporate in your studies next. Just reach out to me using the email in the description of this episode and i'll make sure that you get access so before we get into today's interview let's review the phrase we learned in the previous episode this phrase roughly translates to it was a feast but really, it's just a set phrase that you can use after you finish a meal in Japan in order to express gratitude. Today's phrase is very simple and versatile: "Dozo, dozo." This phrase can have various definitions, including, "Here you are, Help yourself," and so on. You will often hear this phrase used when a waiter brings you food, for example. You can use this phrase yourself if you are offering something to someone else, such as a seat on the train. So today's guest is Sebastian, who is currently the community manager at a company called Japan Travel. You've probably come across their website at some point if you've ever planned a trip to Japan. Their website is filled with contributions from partners all over the country, so there's always new and interesting content being added apart from the standard Tokyo, Osaka, and Kyoto hotspots. So of course, they have plenty of information about even those locations as well. They also offer a bunch of services for planning trips, logistics, and even tours, so be sure to check out the description of this episode to find a link to their website. They are also working to expand their content to 15 different languages, so it's a great resource for people all over the world. Sebastian will explain his history in Japan during our interview, but since much of what he says has to do with specific dietary restrictions in Japan, any listeners who have alternative diets will definitely benefit. But of course, anyone who eats will enjoy this episode as well, so be sure to stick around. All right, so today's guest is named Sebastian, and if you wouldn't mind going ahead and introducing yourself to my audience.
1: Hi, everybody, and thanks, Lydia, for this opportunity. Uh, My name is Sebastian from France, and I've been living in Japan for 15 years. I'm a big fan of the country. I enjoy especially its uh, diverse landscapes. Um, We have Siberian climate in Hokkaido in the north. We have in the south in Iriomote. I like the hot springs and I like the people in Japan who are really, really great. Um, One of the things I prefer to do during my free time is hiking. Mm. And for my work, I try to make a better world.
0: Yeah. So then how did you get involved with Japan? history with
1: the country on the contrary to many people I've, i I had no special interest in in Japan initially I did see a few uh, anime on TV but I was not a big uh, otaku so I came to Japan the first time to do an internship when I was studying virtual reality for my master's degree I wanted to do my internship uh, abroad so I had the choice between the USA and Japan and when I checked what was possible, I saw in the USA, most of the projects are related to military fundings, which was not necessarily what I wanted to promote. And mm. in Japan was more like crazy ideas, like uh, interfaces you put in the mouth to, steam, to, to simulate you're eating some kind of food. Mm. So Japan looked much more interesting, at least in that sense. Um, and this is how I came to Japan the first time. What happened is, People in Japan don't speak much English and I don't speak much Japanese. I didn't speak any Japanese at that time, to be honest. And I couldn't read any kanji around. So I got very frustrated during my internship in Japan and I decided to come back to really discover the country, um, learn the language and meet the people. So I came back a bit later, a few months later to do a PhD. And I've been in Japan most of the time afterwards.
0: Mm -hmm. So then what kind of work are you doing now specifically?
1: Now I'm working for a company called Japan Travel KK. Um, It's both a media and travel agency. So the company is creating, for example, websites and contents to promote tourism in Japan for different regions. And on the other hand, uh, my colleagues are organizing trips for people the unique aspect about the company is that it was created after the big earthquake we had in 2011 and it started basically with our ceo terry lloyd gathering people to try to inform people about uh, the situation like radiation things like this and when things were better to help support the local businesses things like this and he gathered people big group of volunteers so what happened is the companies uh, built on a community that has been growing um, from just one person to now more than 20,000 people. And I'm the community manager of that company, which means I have to provide support for these 20,000 people. Uh, I have to find new people who are big fans of Japan and Mm -hmm. uh, guide them on how to um, support the country. And because we have many opportunities for people who live in Japan, also help people develop their skills and career. For example, they can help become a, by becoming advisors for our projects, their own point of view as a, an American, as a Spanish, as a, a vegan, as a Muslim, as a person in a wheelchair about traveling Japan. Um, we also help people who are writers and this can be done completely remotely. So I have... To take care of the people we have, I have to find the right people to help with projects. And I try to make things um, beneficial for the Japanese people, the community members who help, and of course for the company at the same time.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a lot of people you have to manage. So it almost sounds like kind of a crowdsourced (laughs) resource to promote travel and development in Japan.
1: Yeah, I think uh, that, that's an, an easy way to see things. Um, just to clarify a bit things, of course, I have all my team who have been helping mm-hmm. and uh, we organize things in a kind of pyramidal way. So I have 50 people approximately who are special community members who are trusted. We know very well the regions who have been um, providing advice for a long time. So I'm working mostly with these 50 people and they take care of um, groups of people, for example, living in the prefecture, they live themselves.
0: How did you get involved with that company then?
1: I had been working with another company in marketing and I felt I didn't have any decision power. So I would not be able to have a, a really big impact for travelers in Japan. It was a marketing company for, for inbound tourism and i decided not to stay in the company and i was looking for something else to do and i contacted people i knew and um i think like many people you don't find a job in a in a small ad um at least a good good job but through the people you know so i i contacted people i knew and unexpectedly one of the ladies i had met during a, a seminar related to promotion of local activities told me about her company. So her name was, her name is Megumi and uh, she's still working for for Japan Travel. And she said that with my background and interest, um, I could bring lots of value and she would be very happy to introduce me to the company. So I met the boss and I think in a few hours I had met um, the CEO, the creative director. Um, I had had a short Japanese interview with one of the Japanese travel agents in the company. I had met all these people and they looked really, really nice. And um a few days later I was in the company.
0: Wow. So that was a pretty quick turnaround for you then. But that's amazing.
1: <laughs> yes. And I mean the company is, is kind of Japan Travel website is, is kind of one of the big big ones. The website is probably the biggest one because it's in certain languages, but to be honest, I had never used it. The reason is I'm doing all my research in Japanese, Mm -hmm. so I go on Japanese website. But uh, I think for people who don't speak Japanese or read Japanese, this is probably one of the biggest resources. So maybe some of your listeners will already know about the company.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure if people have been researching Japan at all that they've come across some of the resources there because it's pretty comprehensive. It's very accessible. So going back a little bit, how did you, prove your Japanese so much?
1: Okay, so the first thing was um, during the internship, really, I couldn't speak at all, Mm -hmm. so I understood it was very important to make big, big efforts to be able to enjoy the country, so I had this very strong motivation behind it. I think the motivation is the first thing because when you have to study all the kanji and a grammar that is so different from English, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have that motivation, you just uh, will not make progress or you will just stop um, in your tracks. And when I came back to Japan for my PhD studies, the university provided free uh, Japanese classes. I think it was four times a week, one hour. We were working, uh, studying with a book called Minanoni Hongo.
0: Oh, yeah. And we
1: had a Yep, And we had a Japanese teacher who spoke only in Japanese to us to, to mm-hmm. force us to, to use completely the thing. So what happened um, is that we had a big group. And after two months, I really noticed that I was um, not very happy with the group, in fact. The reason was I was one of the only ones who was really motivated due to my previous internship that didn't work that well. Um, Um, Mm language-wise. I was probably the only one that was really motivated to become completely fluent and so there was this big gap in, in level. And when we were studying with a Japanese teacher, the method was really focusing on one point of grammar every time. So when people were talking, if that grammatical point was correct, we were moving to the next person even if there were many other mistakes in the sentence and I started to notice mistakes in the sentences and I was kind of kind of shocked the, the teacher didn't correct people so it's just a, a choice of method but that made me think that if I'm just listening to people around me I might just learn things that are wrong so I stopped going to the classes and I studied by myself hmm. and um, I was going to a cafe every day spending maybe one hour and a half um, by myself and in I started also to do language exchanges with Japanese people who are very, very good in English. So we started speaking only in English. And every time I was learning something by myself or through the language exchange, I was trying to reuse it the next time. And using again and again and again, the same thing in your everyday life, um, it becomes really part of the knowledge you have. So... I could move from 99% English to 50% English to 99% Japanese in the discussions. So I think it was a uh, lot of work by myself plus a language exchange and using everyday life, every time I could. Also, I'm French and I really made an effort to not be in contact with French people. So I was using Japanese as much as I could.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a good way to go about it. I hear from a lot of people that it's just very easy to get sucked into the expat bubble, which there's nothing wrong with spending time with expats. But if your goal is to really improve your Japanese, that's um, not really the way that you should be spending your time.
1: That's true. And I would have maybe one piece of advice from people. I think uh, there is one of the big points about learning the Japanese language is learning the culture too because the grammar is also so different. For example, in English, you say, I did something. But in Japanese, very often, you don't even need to put the subject in the sentence. And the feeling you have about things is very different if you understand the culture. So you need to learn both of them to, uh, to be able to improve your Japanese level. Otherwise, you're just translating, but it will sound unnatural.
0: Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. Because um, I majored in Japanese in college, but the focus was primarily just on the language. Without about the way Japanese people tend to think, and of course that's all tied into Japanese culture overall. Like you said, you just end up translating everything. So you, you, one, don't sound natural, and two, you just say things completely wrong way. Because you're just trying to make things verbatim instead of figuring out what things actually mean and doing it that way. So... Sorry for the little sidetrack, but going back to what you were saying about Japanese and working in the travel agency, I'm sure that you've come in contact with a lot of traditional Japanese hospitality. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that?
1: I've met lots of people in hotels. I've met lots of people who are just artisans who are very happy to share knowledge about um, the things they make, their crafts, um, like making objects, made of gold, for example, or just made of wood. And um, I've been really amazed by how clean things are in Japan. Of course, in the street, and that's more like the behavior of people, but in the hotels, um, people are really making an effort so that things don't look too old, uh, that there is the proper decorations at the right place, that you are greeted when you arrive people might have difficulty speaking in English. So in fact, uh, if you go in the countryside, um, it's more like a a feeling than than really uh, understanding what's going on. Um, But you have many, many small things that are prepared for visitors that are really, really exciting. For example, you go to a traditional inn, you will have on the table already tea, ready for you you will have some small cookies that are probably regional ones maybe seasonal ones you will have drawers with the yukata you can wear while you are in the traditional inn. that will be so the drawers will be already kind of half open and when you have three drawers on top of each other they will be open at a length so you can see what's inside each drawer so you can have one with the yucata itself one for the belt um, things like this and it's already ready for you to just notice everything you need to notice and to just feel comfortable immediately also one thing that's very different from what i've seen in other countries is when you go to a traditional inn and you sleep for example on a tatami you will have a big table for example typically in the middle of the room. When you arrive, you put your bags. And if you go eat um, in the restaurant of the inn, when you come back, maybe the table has been pushed away and some staff has put the fruit on the tatami instead so everything is ready for you to go to bed. And you don't see the staff do that. It just appears magically. So the first time, it's very, very surprising. I think there are many exciting and surprising things going on in in Japan, Um, you know, hospitality. And people are always trying to give you a good quality of service. The only problem I've seen in Japan is really the, the ability to speak um, to speak English, in fact, or French or Spanish.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing up the um, kind of room turnover that they do, because I had that experience in Japan. I was completely not expecting it. So I kind of left my things everywhere. I left my bag <laughs> open and things like that. So just remember that um people may be coming in your room after you so try not to leave your bag wide open on the floor if you're in an inn.
1: (laughs) yeah i can i can understand that i'm
0: sure they were a little surprised by that too this form of hospitality omotenashi um, is there anything in particular that you appreciate about it
1: Okay, so omotenashi is is a concept um, basically related to to Japanese hospitality and it's mainly anticipating needs. So that's for example having the fruit on ready when you come back from dinner is a very good example. Um, But it's also providing good service um, without expecting any reward. So in Japan you don't give tips for example and you pay attention to details all the time. So From a traveler perspective, or from a foreigner coming from a business trip, things can be maybe not noticed at all, but you just feel so comfortable. And this is one of the things I really appreciate about Japanese hospitality. Just to give a few examples of uh, how things look in in different contexts, when you take a taxi, the driver will have a small system that allows him to push. He just pushes a lever and the door open for you to get in and to go out. So you don't have to, to take the handle and to use your strength. So it's, it's very, very smooth for you. Um, when you go to a restaurant, typically you can have chopsticks in, in different settings, but if it's wooden chopsticks wrapped in paper, when you, remove the paper and you break the chopsticks, uh, you separate them. You will find in between a very small toothpick, so it's already ready for the end of the meal. It's uh, available for you. Also, you get towels when you arrive to to wipe your hands to make sure you're you're clean. When you go to the restrooms, you will have a small holder. That's very typical, a small holder where you can put your umbrella, which is one of the most important objects in Japan. Mm-hmm. And you have the same thing in, uh, in ATM machines. Uh, you can't really use your credit cards in many shops nowadays, so you would probably go to an ATM machine. And you have a holder too for um, your bag or for your umbrella. Um, other things is you know, gift. Your purchases are always wrapped in um, many layers and typically beautifully made, so that can be a bit annoying when you're packing back to go to packing to go back to your country and you want to make uh, things as small as possible to to fit in your in your suitcase. But this is really very very nice when it's for you or when you bring it to somebody else. So this is uh, the kind of things I really like about. uh, about omotenashi and uh, it's, it's really in, in everyday life. It's not just hospitality in the narrow sense of only the hotel or only with the guide or in the bus.
0: Mm-hmm. So this attention to detail and anticipating of needs sounds like such a great thing. So what could possibly be wrong with omotenashi?
1: Well, omotenashi is, um, assumes that people will appreciate Um, all the services so it's typically working very well with Japanese people because it's the same culture but when you're coming from a different country you can feel um, there is a a gap with your own expectations so for example um, I think most Americans and and French people want to have coffee for breakfast and in hotels it's typically okay but in um Bed and breakfast places in traditional inns, you might have trouble getting coffee for breakfast. Um, Maybe you need to go to a vending machine, which can be in the building, or you need to go to a nearby convenience store, but it's not like you have tea in the room, but you you don't have coffee, uh, even if it's just instant coffee, right? Mm -hmm. So people are really used to foreigners coming and they know foreigners like coffee, but they don't change the way the organized things another problem would be for people who come taiwan i think it's approximately 20 percent vegans or people who come from the middle east or i think malaysia indonesia we have there are quite a few muslims so the problem in that case is the menus have not been designed to allow these people to at least immediately see if there is something for them. and In most cases, there is really, uh, for vegans, most of the time there is absolutely nothing. So, homotenancy is good because it anticipates needs, but it's not like the client is always right. It's more like um, we do what we know is best for the client, and when you have this kind of cultural gap, the decisions made by the japanese doesn't match really the needs of the the travelers and the, the business people so this is where things go go wrong i think we have more and more um, inns making efforts and hotels and restaurants but it's really not perfect um, so you have to to plan things accordingly another thing is in many shops even in touristic areas you don't have English menus. So in some shops, it's very easy because outside you have this kind of uh, fake food models that are very realistic. So at least you have an idea of what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. But for vegans, it may not tell you if there is milk or, or fish in the in the soup, for example. And in other places, everything is just written in Japanese. And you, the only thing you can do is to point at, at the, the dish of somebody on another table. So, things are moving a bit slowly in that direction right
0: tell us a little bit more about how alternative diets are treated in japan i know from from other people's experiences from my own experiences a little bit as well france and japan are kind of notorious for if somebody asks for oh can i have this but even just like without onions or something simple like that the waiter either freezes (laughs) <laughs> or has to go talk to literally everybody else and then come back and say, I'm sorry, we can't do that. It has to all be together. So can you tell us a little bit more about how, especially if they have allergies or something, how that sort of thing is dealt with in Japan typically?
1: Yes, one thing people need to know first is many of the restaurants in Japan are really specialized so you go to a shop it will be only ramen you go to another shop it will be maybe only curry you go to another shop it's only sushi so you don't have a diversity on the menu that allows you to to take oh I'm going to get the salad or I'm going to get uh, to get chicken instead of of beef so you have to choose the restaurants properly from the start um, to be in the right category this is the most important thing then On lunchtime, especially for example, in big cities like Tokyo and Osaka, people will have a short break, go back to work. So everything is organized so that you eat very, very quickly, which means nobody's asking for any personalized um, preparations. Also, in some cases, you just don't even order the food to the chef or to the staff, you just go on a machine and you push one button where you have chosen your food. So there is again nowhere to personalize things. So if you're um, vegan, for example, if you're vegetarian, one option is to just go to Indian restaurants, which is not the most exciting choice. If you go to Japan, you want mm-hmm. Japanese food, but at least it's a practical uh, way of doing things. Now, if you're vegan, it becomes much more complicated. So it depends completely on where you are. If you're in Kyoto, Osaka, so the Kansai area. um, You will have many restaurants that provide uh, Shojin Ryori, which is Buddhist uh, traditional cuisine, which is vegan. And the reason is because Buddhism arrived in Japan in this area. Uh, If you're in Tokyo, you have much less choice. So the first thing is, um, depending on the area where where you are, you have different options, If you're in Tokyo, you will find lots of information online about restaurants that provide um, vegan food. And it may not be the best food, it may not be the cheapest food, but you will be able to find it. If you go in family restaurants, you will probably not find really what you need. You might just end up ordering a salad and removing the small shrimps by yourself. It's very difficult to know what ingredients are in the food. So that makes things very, very complicated. But um, for example, recently, one of the big fast food chains called Moss Burger uh, launched a plant-based burger. So you can just go to a Moss Burger and and order what they call the green burger and it will be... So that makes things easy. Also for Muslims, in, in a way, Muslims, it's easier because you just look for the keyword halal on online and you will find lots of information for touristic places so in tokyo in asakusa area you will find several restaurants that have been opened but by, by foreigners or maybe the owner is japanese but with a foreign partner and uh, some of the staff is muslim so you're sure things are really reasonably sure that things are halal if you go to kyoto you will find also uh, lots of restaurants that will be like uh, halal beef, uh, halal chicken. But you have to be careful to avoid typically ramen because it's uh, the soup. You don't see pieces of meat, but the soup is prepared using pork. Mm-hmm. So the famous food in Japan is typically the ramen noodles, the sushi, which is made with fish, um, the tempura, which can be mostly, which is mostly seafood and vegetables. So you have really little choice on the very very famous food. Uh, what I would recommend is really to uh, maybe look online for cooking classes and go for an activity where you will learn. At, you will learn and you will eat the food afterwards. That's uh, that's a good solution. If you are in Japan at the right time at the right place, uh, you could go to a vegan festival, which is with the coronavirus now i think many events are are cancelled but it was a good option at least last year and if you can spend some time doing uh, a night at a buddhist temple you're almost sure you can eat um, vegan food on site and also um, nowadays, you can f- if you know exactly where to look at in Tokyo Station, you can find vegan sushi. You also have, and this is takeaway, so you can just take in the Shinkansen to your next destination. You can eat at the hotel in a different city afterwards. You also have like ramen noodles, like for example, a shop called Tantan. Tan. Um, this shop is so famous that even the natural laws and convenience stores have started to sell their instant noodles, which oh, are vegan. Wow. I'm not sure. I don't think it's all the convenience stores of natural Lawson, so, um, but at least um, Tokyo, I believe most of them. There are at least two tastes, uh, and I bought them. So uh, they're nice enough. One way to, to be flexible when you're a traveler is to find a place where you can get a vegan bento. So you go buy it, and you can just eat when you want in a completely different area. Otherwise, you're really blocked by having to be in specific places at specific times to to eat your meal, and many of the vegan restaurants have uh, irregular closing days, so you might just arrive and it's closed today. Some um, additional things, because mm-hmm. your question was also about uh, much broader. So uh, we have now many restaurants in uh, in Tokyo that are gluten free. You find the information very easily online. But for people who have allergies, it's very difficult because of that kind of information on the menu. People may not speak at all English, so you can just ask them if there is one ingredient, like, I don't know, peanut or whatever, uh, in the food. But you have, for example, um, one of the chains of foods called Otoya. I think you can find, restaurants in many of the big cities in Japan. And they have a menu that includes a big list of ingredients at the end. The menu is very diverse. It's, uh, you can order kind of almost anything except sushi probably. Mm. And you have a list of the ingredients used for the different dishes uh, at the end. I just don't remember if it's also in English, but uh, I'm definitely sure it's, it's in Japanese at least available.
0: Okay, that's good to know.
1: Um, one more thing, because we are speaking in English and your own listeners are probably mostly Americans, the word for allergy is alerugi, so it's uh, very similar. It's based on the on the English, so you can just say alerugi and maybe you use your, your cell phone to show uh, with automatic translation the name of the food for mm-hmm. which you're allergic, and that can just maybe make things quite smooth during your stay.
0: Mm-hmm. I've also seen some printable cards online where people can um, get some help figuring out what to write in Japanese. So basically yes. it would just be saying, I have allergies to these things. So if you could just get one of those, laminate it, bring it with you everywhere, that would definitely be a good idea.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good idea. That's really a good idea. Yeah, and,
0: especially uh, if it's a serious one.
1: Yeah, especially, especially if it's for kids or if it's a very strong ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it's not i mean if it's very light you don't really care but if it's not that light but even not that strong just remember that when you're abroad you have the the jet lag you're probably Mm -hmm. very tired at the end of the day if you come in summer it's going to be very humid and heavy um so anything that goes a bit wrong with your body will feel a bit stronger so you should pay attention to that definitely
0: definitely don't want to get sick or overextend your digestive system while you're traveling that's never a good situation
1: that you can also just go to convenience stores and, and just buy very simple um, rice balls which are triangles in fact in japan onigiri um, the ingredients are relatively simple so you might just have one word uh, written maybe in japanese maybe in english uh, on the front telling you there is salmon or something like this, but you don't end up with a mix of many ingredients. So if you're allergic to peanuts, uh, the risk that there is some in the onigiri is almost zero.
0: Yeah, that's a really good idea. They do have some simple foods, but also, unfortunately, if you were hoping to just avoid um, foods based on your allergies, by having fresh fruit, it be something that would actually break your budget. you're
1: in japan so well yeah if you go to supermarkets you can really find lots of stuff but i think if you start to buy fruit i mean tomatoes would be okay but if you start to buy peaches or things like this you will see the price for one peach. maybe maybe as an american you would think it's the price for the full pack of of peaches so uh, that's a difficult one but uh for example if if you have the chance to join a a group tour or if you if you are ready to drive in japan you can also go to this kind of fruit picking activities if it's the right season so maybe not uh, maybe not winter and depending on the region where you are uh, for example in in hokkaido you could probably do melon Uh, in uh, uh, near Mount fuji you could probably do strawberries and grapes if you're in okayama it's very famous for the peaches and totally for the pears so you can go for this kind of activities and it's typically uh, all you can eat so it may not be too cheap maybe a uh, 20 25 dollars minimum but you can eat as much as you want and the fruits are really really good and if you have a car for example that's just uh, you can just go to between two destinations so that would be a good a solution too
0: That's a great idea. I didn't get a chance to do that when I was in Japan, but next time I definitely want to make a point of it. It's not cheap, but but it's one of the cheaper ways to get your fill of And
1: it's very, very high quality. The the Mm -hmm. fruit is typically super sweet. The Mm -hmm. grapes will be juicy. If you go for strawberry picking, my image when I went for strawberry picking would be, ah, you pick up the strawberries and of course you pick up the strawberries, but you might have, I don't know, five, six, 10 different types of strawberries that have, of course, different shape, but also different taste. So depending on the the week of the year, you might have the choice between only three or four, but you can just pick up and compare. And it's not too boring because if you had only one type, you might just get bored with eating uh, 30 identical strawberries.
0: Mm -hmm. That's such a good idea. So looking at Japanese culture related to food, you mentioned that convenience plays a big part in hard to make substitutions just because they're trying to get people in and out so quickly but is there any other part of Japanese culture that might kind of make it difficult for Japanese businesses and restaurants to accommodate dietary restrictions specifically?
1: I think for one thing probably that Washoku cuisine Mm -hmm. was registered as a UNESCO world heritage intangible world heritage so Japanese food is really recognized as a Great, great uh, food, and we have also. Uh, I think Tokyo has the biggest number of Michelin stars restaurants worldwide as a city, so we have really, really good food. But on the other hand, you also know that Japanese people live a very, very long time, and that's probably partly due to their food. So the idea is you need to have healthy food, so you don't eat too much, but also you make sure in every meal you have many ingredients in small quantities to make sure your body gets everything it needs and and not too much of something. That means uh, when you take a, a soup, there may be so many ingredients in it. And for example, if you're vegan, it may not be just, a, oh, let's remove the pieces of chicken. No, 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 because you already have a mix maybe of, of several um, things related to shrimp, to to chicken, and it's not pieces you can just take because it's it's really in the soup. So the first, is in Japanese food you mix many many different ingredients to make the food healthy. Then uh, from a work perspective, one of the things you do when you work for a Japanese company, maybe less with a, an international company in Japan, is to attend what we call a nomikai. Um, Nomi means to drink, kai it means meeting, so basically it's a party you would have on a Friday evening with your colleagues and the Japanese will all take a beer and, and start to get drunk because they get drunk very quickly. Mm-hmm. And they would become very, very friendly. And you would typically do that uh, in an izakaya, which is a restaurant where you have lots of choice on the menu, so you can just pick uh, many different things. Well, the problem with that is, Muslims, obviously um, the nomikai part doesn't work very well because Muslims don't drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, of course japanese people are very understanding so if you order tea it's fine but they will that will put you aside from the group which is a small difficult part of will make feeling um, getting together with, with your colleagues, so that will put you a bit apart and that, that's a bit sad. And the izakaya, well, you have lots of choice, but again, um, it's not designed at all for, for vegans. So you might just eat edamame, so, so soybeans basically, uh, maybe a small pieces of tomatoes, but everything else will come and will be a mix of either fish or meat with with other things. Um, And nomikai is really an important part of the culture. Many Japanese people don't like it because they have Mm -hmm. to spend money to pay for it and they have to go so they can't just go back home. But uh, it's it's a part of the culture. Also, in many cases, the izakaya, people will be smoking. So it's not so comfortable for many Westerners. Mm -hmm. Another thing is, as I said earlier, many of the very famous Japanese foods based on, on meat so ramen is is made with broth based on pork some of the onigiri rice balls might be uh containing some some broth based on bonito so fish um so yeah you have to be a bit uh a bit flexible or you have to explain very well to people around you that you're very strict for um, health reasons for religious reasons um and they will just try to make things work for you.
0: Yeah, people will typically go pretty well out of their way to try to accommodate others, but unfortunately because kind of the point of the nomikai is to make a group more cohesive, if you can't participate fully, unfortunately, it's, you might not end up getting as much out of it as you otherwise would have.
1: Exactly, exactly. Especially, uh, especially if you're a foreigner and you don't speak that much Japanese, uh, non-verbal communication can be the strongest way to establish bonds with your colleagues. So getting kind of drunk together is is one of the ways in Japan that things could be done uh, very easily.
0: So, do you have any other advice for people who have these kinds of dietary restrictions? Some things that they should know about before they go to the country?
1: Um, for For travelers, I would say you have to plan in advance. You can find lots of information on online, at least for the big cities. If you want to go in the countryside, you might need to spend much more time or ask the help of somebody who can read Japanese. So could just be using a travel agent, a travel agent to, um, to plan things in a secondary destinations. So typically that would be, if you come back to Japan for the second, third time, fourth time, I would recommend to make reservations too, and maybe just don't go for the small onigiri rice ball in the convenience store and the tomatoes in the supermarket because that will be fine but when you go back to your country you will feel you didn't really make anything exceptional so you should try to have meals in places that are a bit special for example i strongly recommend going to kanga which is one of the restaurants in in a Buddhist temple in Kyoto near the former Imperial Palace. It's kind of expensive, this one is expensive. Uh, That would be maybe the one meal I would recommend. So you would pay between uh, 45 to to $100 per person, but uh, that would be a huge course with beautiful vegan food. The staff speaks English and uh, you would have an amazing experience, Uh, the texture, the taste maybe not the smell, because there is no smell basically, and the surroundings are really, really good. People who, who live here, so people who, are, who would be maybe students, who will be expats, uh, who come for a business meeting, who stay for a few days or a few weeks, um, I would recommend asking help from your colleagues, from your professor, from the secretary, Um, pointers, for they will look for information for restaurants where you can eat. And if you're staying really long time, probably you want to to learn how to cook with uh, Japanese ingredients like like miso and how to read the labels. Also, you can use a lot of online shopping nowadays, depending on where you live. You can use services of Costco, for example, so you can very easily find vegan products coming from abroad. You can use uh, dedicated online shops like Alishan, and there will be more options coming little by little we don't do too much food delivery at home yet but things are changing so if you're in a big city you might have more chances to uh, to have access to vegan food even if it's a bit far and you can't just walk there
0: so basically luckily if you go to japan without any preparations you will survive But if you do some research, if you do some preparations ahead of time, it'll definitely pay off. So I really suggest that if you have any dietary restrictions, just do your best to do your homework ahead of time. It'll make things so much easier later on. Exactly. So do you personally have any examples of culture related communication breakdowns in Japan?
1: probably could find a lot <laughs> I've been here <laughs> for 15 years so what happens I've been here for 15 years so many things happen but at the same time I forgot most of the things that happened at the beginning which is uh, the funniest I think I can give two examples. We're just just talking about food, so I will start with an example related to food. When you're learning the Japanese language, you will will learn something like itadakimasu, and I think you introduced that word in one of your Mm -hmm. previous podcasts. So itadakimasu is something you would say when when you're starting to eat. Um, In France, we would say bon appetit, which means good appetite, enjoy your meal, to other people um, when we start to eat together and when we we are leaving a restaurant and we see them at a different table. But itadakimasu is not something you say to other people. It's something you will say, even if you're alone at the top of a mountain and you're going to start to eat your bento lunchbox, it means I receive. And what happened once um, is when I was a student and just starting to learn Japanese, I was leaving a restaurant, the university restaurant, and I just saw some Japanese and I said, itadakimasu to them. And they were very, very complex. I mean, they, they were wondering like what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> because nobody says that to other people and I had already finished to eat anyway. So mm-hmm. we had this kind of huge gap. Now from a more business oriented perspective, there is one one thing I think Everybody leaves at some point. It's going to meetings and having, assuming you're speaking Japanese already, and having people say hi, 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 all the time, which means yes. And you finish the meeting, and in my case, I go back to to the company where I was working. I said, the meeting went very well. They agreed with everything. And a few days later, you understand that they didn't agree with everything because (laughs) in Japanese high, is is the right way to to just tell you, I'm listening to you. I understand Mm -hmm. what you say, but not necessarily I agree. If they can agree or not, but that's not really the the point. So the way the the translation is correct, but the way it's used makes... uh, cultural communication breakdowns very, very easy. Mm-hmm. And even over time, you, I'm still not very sure, and I think many Japanese people around me are not necessarily sure at the end of meetings if people agreed or not, but at least we are aware that uh, there is a, this possible difference.
0: Yeah, a very clear example of why it's so important to learn the language and the culture together, not just one or the other. Because even in English, if you're having, in English, the other party, Japanese um, education system, they more focus on translation, writing, and things like that. So they don't maybe understand what yes means to somebody from the West. (laughs) So they may just not realize that they're saying yes, 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 and we think that they agree, but they actually don't. So. You still have to be careful of it, even if they're speaking in English.
1: That's true. And you have also kind of the the other side of the coin, and that would be that Japanese people are not expressing that much when they disagree because mm. they try to. It's, I think it's part of being respectful in Japan is not to show disagreement or to tell people they are wrong. And because you don't have this kind of negative signs coming in the discussion, you are also more likely to believe there is agreement when there is no agreement i think if i go to america and people disagree they will not say yes of course but they will also tell me no you're wrong or i don't <laughs> i don't want to do it that way or let's plan a different calendar or let's use a different supplier or um, or something else
0: or right, that's interesting maybe we should think about this that sort of thing <laughs>
1: <laughs> i think it's it's really important when you when you have a when you do business in Japan, people are super open to uh, to foreigners speaking a little bit Japanese, and they will they will appreciate that a lot. But the language is really not the only thing you need to understand. The cultural part, and when you get an interpreter, if you have like an important contract or you you're coming with your boss from America, I think it's important to have maybe a, either an interpreter with uh, skilled, not just somebody who speaks Japanese, uh, mm-hmm. somebody's. who who worked and and knows how to interpret things in a more like a conceptual way or to have local um, Japanese people who are bilingual from the the other company to help with the translation and still be very careful where there might be some misunderstandings based on culture.
0: Mm -hmm. You need a cultural interpreter as well as a language interpreter.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So if somebody was going over to Japan for business and they could only know one thing about the country or the culture ahead of time, what would you say that one thing should be?
1: It's a tough question because I think the culture is so different. So of course there is an example I just gave about people saying hi, which doesn't necessarily mean yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm just putting that aside. Um, If I had to choose only one thing in the context, uh, context of business success in Japan, I would say just know that people will appreciate any small effort you will make your interest in in the culture in Japanese people. And that comes in many ways. People will be happy happy just if you know how to say, which means thank you or to say hello. Or uh, if you bring um, a small gift, which is it doesn't need to be expensive, but it's part of the Japanese culture to bring, for example, some cookies that are famous in your region. So something that people you can easily bring back, bring to Japan. Small, small cookies from from your area. Um, this is really a small effort that will make people feel you have been uh, trying to understand the culture and try, or trying to communicate with people. And you don't need to be perfect. Making mistake is absolutely not a problem. People will appreciate when they see the effort. And I think it's about the
0: effort. Yeah, that's a really good thing to point out because at least for me, I was always too worried about making a fool out of myself, but it really is just the effort that people appreciate, especially because proportion to the number of people who go to Japan for business, um, the proportion of people who are legitimately interested in the country, make an effort in the country, to actually understand the people there is relatively small. So anything you can do to show that effort and appreciation will definitely go a long way.
1: Well, another aspect is come to sign a contract to establish a partnership. It's different if you come to get a job, but if you, if you come to establish a partnership or or a contract, um, the process is going to be long and it's going Mm. to be based on, on trust and on the relationship you establish kind of personally in work context, but directly with the persons. So doing these things brings you very close to the Japanese and that helps you succeed, I think.
0: All right, well, that's a perfect way to end. Thank you so much for your time, Sebastian.
1: Thanks a lot for your time and for inviting
0: me. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation today as much as I did. While the Japan Travel website doesn't specialize in people with specific diets, check out the link below to Sebastian's contributions as he is working hard to get that information out to people who need it so they can truly enjoy their time in Japan. And like I mentioned earlier, they are working to expand their content into 15 languages so you can share the website with people all around the world who might benefit from it. Also, remember to reach out to me if you're interested in gaining access to my cheat sheet for studying Japanese. You can find my email address in the description of this episode. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. So if you found the information here today useful, please subscribe for more Japanese language and cultural guidance. And if you enjoyed the podcast and want to hear more content in the future, please consider leaving a review. It really helps other people find the show. And of course, if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics, please email me at business at gmail.com. Until next time, Mata kondo.